evening, everybody. Uh, my name is Dave Snoke. I'm one of the elders here. And uh, we've been going through a sermon series uh, in 1 Corinthians, and uh, I'm finishing up chapter 10. I'm not sure if we're going to continue next week in that, but um, uh, it's been fun over the whole summer to go through uh, this text. Uh, Naaman Cho uh, preached on the first half of 1 Corinthians 10 uh, at the, uh, last week, and uh, I'm going to finish it off uh, and see what uh, Apostle Paul has for us tonight. So if you turn your bulletin to page uh, three, uh, I have the text in front of you. Uh, and our pattern is when I'm done, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, and the response is thanks be to God. So hear the word of God uh, from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his good, but the good of his neighbor. Let whatever is sold in the meat market without, uh, or eat whatever is sold in the meat market <clears throat> without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof. If one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of the many that they may be saved. This is the word of the Lord. So there's a number of different uh, things that one could talk about this in the passage, but I'm going to focus in on the, uh, the theme that Matt already mentioned, the idea of freedom or um, the word liberty is used in this passage here uh, when Paul talks about his liberty. Uh, and I'm going to start out probably the first uh, third or more of the sermon, just giving the broader context of this passage, uh, and uh, then we'll focus in uh, and the last part in really how that plays out in this specific passage in front of us. But I want to really set this in context uh, to a large degree uh, and really look at the big picture and ask you this question. Uh, what is your personal experience in Christianity? Or if you're not a Christian, what is your perception of Christianity? Um, is it that of freedom or is it that of constraint? Uh, do you... When you think of Christianity, you think of it as a, a life, as, uh, as part of who you are as you're a Christian, or if you're considering becoming a Christian, what do you think it means? Uh, does it just ring a bell and resonate with you that in Christianity is freedom, uh, or does it feel like it's constraint? Now, there was a fellow I knew uh, several years ago, uh, probably many of us have known a person like this, uh, who in modern parlance uh, would say uh, deconstructed Christianity, left the faith. Uh, and one of the things he said, a lot of things to say, but one of the things he said is that Christianity always felt like a cage to me. And that was his experience of Christianity. Is that your experience? Uh, and also, maybe that's not your experience, but I could also ask the question, what is the Christianity that you convey to others if you are a Christian? Uh, what is it that you spend your time talking about and, and relating 
uh, to other people. Do you spend most of your time talking about moral principles and what's the right thing and the wrong thing to do? Uh, or is what the message you convey that of the freedom and goodness uh, that God has given you in Christ? And so it's a very practical matter. And uh, in the context that I'm giving you here is really the whole New Testament, uh, but in particular, uh, apostles Paul and Peter have a lot to say about freedom. I'll just uh, read some of these in your additional scriptures. Uh, we already read uh, one of them uh, in our call to uh, confession. He says, for you were called to freedom, brothers. And then just a few others, uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And then in Galatians 5.13, I already read that. uh, For you were called to freedom. 2 Corinthians 3. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is... There is freedom. Uh, those are all from the Apostle uh, Paul, from uh, the Apostle Peter. We have a very similar uh, uh, theme. Uh, in First Peter chapter 2, he says, live as people who are free. So again, I ask you, is this your experience? Is it your experience that you feel the unbinding of your heart, that you feel uh, that you have uh, really got that sense of freedom in your life? And I would say, if it's not, you've kind of missed the point, uh, that the gospel, uh, one of the most fundamental things that the gospel brings to us is freedom, is rejoicing at our freedom and understanding what that means. Uh, And so, if for you, Christianity feels like a cage, then you kind of miss the point somewhere along the way. Uh, And it might be that you never got Christianity, or maybe you did, and you somehow worked your way back under the law somehow. Uh, but um, let's remember this uh, theme. So um, I have four different types of freedom uh, that you could find in the New Testament. Uh, and there's probably more than these four that I could talk about, but these are four that uh, struck me. Uh, so these are not in the passage in front of us, but they're really, I would say, thematic through the whole New Testament. Uh, and uh, some of them, as I said, are in your additional scriptures. Uh, So the first one I would put this way is the freedom from fear that if you do something immoral, you will be condemned by God. Um, Now, this is not because uh, we're not concerned about morality, uh, but because the essence of the gospel uh, is that Christ died on the cross so that our sins could be forgiven through the blood of his atonement on the cross. And that means all of our sins, uh, past, present, and future, It doesn't mean that he atoned for like some subset of our sins and we've got to keep our nose clean for the rest of them, Uh, but rather it's uh, the the preaching the gospel is that all of our sins, past, present, and future are forgiven. And really, I could almost stop there and say like if you get that, like everything else follows. Uh, It's really uh, a pretty stunning thing and yet that is sometimes called the scandal of the gospel, Um, that if we are united to Christ by faith, then in a very real sense, his death is my death. And I could say, I have atoned uh, for my sins. Here, Galatians chapter 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That in a very real way, if we're united to Christ, then our, we have 
atoned, uh, we are with Christ. Our, it is as if we are um, with him on the cross and his death is our death, the death that we deserved, uh, he died. And in the same way, his goodness, his righteousness uh, belongs to us. Uh, this isn't in your additional scriptures, but Philippians 3.8 uh, Paul says, I don't have a righteousness of my own, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So we have this twofold message that our sins are forgiven. Uh, and, so, and, and the second part is that our righteousness is from Jesus. So the practical side of this is, uh, I would say in practice, no matter how many times we may hear the gospel, there's something in us that just constantly has this sort of guilty uh, you know, back of our mind thing that, oh, you stepped out of line, that must have put you over the border, God must really dislike you now, God must really hate you. Uh, he couldn't possibly forgive that one. Uh, and so we end up really having, again, a tight heart, not a sense of freedom, but a sense of, oh, if I've stepped out of line, if I've done one too many things, if I've done it one more time, that must be over the line, uh, and I must be condemned. And think about it for a second, like, imagine yourself in a place where you truly believed that there was nothing you could do that would lose God's love for you. How would that change your perspective? Wouldn't you feel sort of an untightening of your heart? Wouldn't you feel like a freedom of saying, like, really, nothing? I, there's nothing I could do that would cause your dismay and your anger uh, to cut me off? So that's point number one, the first type of freedom. You could call that freedom from fear of judgment. Uh, the second one, in a lot of ways, is very similar. Uh, it really follows from the first, which is freedom from worrying about whether people will judge you. Uh, so if the first one is not worrying about God judging you because he has done something about it on the cross, the second is freedom from worrying about whether people will judge you. And um, oftentimes people who might say, well, God forgives me, will still spend an enormous amount of thought time worrying about whether people uh, whether other people will judge them. Uh, and I preached uh, about a month or two ago uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul says, it is a very small thing to me whether I am judged by you or any human court. And it really follows, if the Lord of the universe has judged me acceptable and said I am welcome in his courts, then what in the world does it matter what somebody else thinks of me? The, 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 the creator of the universe has already said I'm okay, and their opinion weighs nothing compared to his. Uh, and so we really, if we grasp that, we can be unbound from fear of what people think about us all the time. And in practice, if in our society people don't think a lot about what God thinks about them, uh, they filled up that void by thinking an awful lot about what other people think about them. Uh, and for many people, their entire lives are driven over trying to have the good opinion of other people uh, and trying to feel like other people feel that they measure up. Uh, and again, imagine yourself in a place where you say, I actually don't care, as Paul said, what anybody thinks about me. Uh, there's freedom there. There's freedom for our hearts. Uh, now, there's uh, other types of freedom. Uh, Paul continues uh, in the New Testament to lay sort of this foundation of freedom. Um, I would call this the freedom uh, from the need to follow a Byzantine set of religious rules. Uh, to be right with God. Uh, so if you uh, look through the New Testament in general, you will see uh, oftentimes a contrast between the law of Moses uh, and the freedom that's in Christ. Now, 
in a very broad brush summary of the teaching in the New Testament, uh, it would say that the law of Moses was given us a good thing in its time, and it indeed involved a lot of Byzantine, so to speak, uh, complicated rules uh, for how to approach God. Uh, and the New Testament perspective is that that was good, but it was kind of like a schoolmaster uh, for a short period of time. Uh, and really teaching us that to approach a holy God as a sinful person is not a trivial thing at all. That God is holy and naturally we would shrink back in fear uh, and the way to him uh, needs to be uh, opened and made uh, open by him. And so the laws of Moses uh, really sort of were a visual picture of the, of the difficulty of approaching a holy God as a sinful person. Uh, but the book of Hebrews goes out of its way to say uh, that in Christ now, those sacrificial laws are fulfilled, and we don't go back to those sacrificial laws of Moses. Uh, but I would say, uh, really, for the last 2,000 years, Christians have been really good at substituting uh, other Byzantine rules for the rules of Moses. Uh, and so it just somehow feels too simple to say that we can have direct access to God and pray uh, and listen to his word as we do tonight. And so it feels like we ought to be doing something to earn his pleasure. Uh, we ought to have some kind of set of complicated rules uh, so that I feel like I've really sort of earned myself into his good graces. Uh, and um, I can tell you a story about this. I uh, remember, so I grew up in the Episcopal Church and um, when I was in middle school, I would say I was not a Christian yet, but I was kind of on the path of really becoming spiritually awake and uh, was reading the Bible and exploring and, and really trying to be part of the church. And I remember uh, at one point uh, in that church, uh, there's a, a common practice, which is to kneel at various points. Uh, some people say they're kneeling all the time. Uh, and it's debatable as to whether, you know, the utility and the value of, of kneeling and so on. But I remember... Uh, getting into like a really religious phase where I was like, you have to have your knees, both knees touch the floor, and it's not, doesn't count if your knees don't fully touch the floor. Uh, and then I got like really judgmental about other people, oh, their knees didn't go all the way down, they're not really truly believers, you know, and I got really judgmental about other people sort of not following all the right rules and so on. Uh, and what was interesting to me is that in one sense, there was a part of me that I would say was becoming spiritually aware that I wanted to be in God's presence, uh, but there was another part of me that just zoomed right toward religious ritual instead of the gospel uh, and, and sort of made these complicated things part of my path uh, to God. Uh, and again, Paul, you know, says, you were, you were, in Christ, you were made free. Don't go back to a yoke of slavery. Don't put new sets of rules on uh, to make it more complicated than it needs to be. Uh, and finally, the, uh, the fourth type of freedom, before we start looking at this passage in detail, uh, I would summarize this way, freedom from the need to create a complicated set of ethical rules. Uh, and instead, we can uh, trust that we have the Holy Spirit in our hearts and that the Spirit makes us competent to make moral decisions without sweating the details. And, and, and this is a really important type of freedom. It's the one that really comes to the fore uh, in the passage in front of us. On the one hand, uh, we want to read our Bibles. We want to be informed by the Bible. Uh, and yet, it's a real temptation for us to want to codify a sort of like a computer program 
uh, or uh, some kind of uh, you know, logical algorithm like the exact right thing to do in every situation. Uh, and actually, in the, uh, in the history of religion, uh, the Jewish uh, religion at one point had a multi-volume set of books called the Talmud, in which that was essentially what was going on. They were working out every possible situation that could come up, what is the right thing to do, so that there would be no sense of human uh, judgment. It would just be clear-cut, every possible right and wrong thing to do. And many people commented in our day, uh, we're really kind of going back to that, sort of a ever-growing sense of there's a right and wrong that I have to adhere to uh, in every situation. And yet, uh, the New Testament tells us there is a freedom in the Spirit, uh, and Hebrews uh, 8.10 puts it this way, <clears throat> says, this is the covenant that I will make, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And so, you know, I've often joked about, you know, Presbyterians, we're not supposed to talk about the Holy Spirit. Um, well, that's not really true. We believe in the full Trinity, uh, and is certainly a New Testament teaching that we should be Spirit-led, uh, that the Spirit gives us grace to have a moral sense, a moral compass, so to speak, uh, to, to do the right thing, uh, and not feel like I have to have a lookup table for exactly the right rule to follow in every situation. Uh, and so there's a certain freedom uh, in that as well. Okay, so those are all these different ways in which Christ brings freedom. Uh, so let's look at the passage now uh, and see how Paul works this out uh, in detail. So um, the context here, um, which um, some of you may know, some of you may not, uh, is uh, the general principle was clearly Christians should not be participating in idolatry. We have God uh, who is the God of Israel, uh, and uh, if there's anything you pick up from reading the Old Testament, uh, is don't worship idols. Uh, well, then there's sort of a secondary question, which is in practice in that day, they would have animal sacrifices, uh, and they would sell the meat that was sacrificed to the idols at discount in the meat market, uh, in, the, in, the, in the marketplace. Uh, and so lots of people said, you know, cheap meat, let's buy that. Uh, and so there became a question of, well, if we buy this meat, are we indirectly supporting uh, paganism? Uh, or are we even perhaps uh, indirectly engaging uh, in worship of idols? And actually, if you think about it for a second, uh, that really relates to a lot of questions which come up today. So uh, if I uh, buy from a company that supports abor abortion, am I indirectly supporting abortion? Uh, or on the other side of the political aisle, if a CEO of some company says he believes in traditional marriage, uh, should we boycott that company for being so, uh, so anti-gay or whatever? Um, the idea of indirect uh, guilt, right? So that if you participate in financially supporting something, are you indirectly supporting uh, the activity that, uh, that the company is uh, engaged in? Uh, and so it's, it's not really that foreign to us, the uh, issue that they're facing here. Um, so Paul uh, lays down uh, a bunch of principles here, uh, and the first one uh, is this. Uh, the motivation uh, that we should be seeking is not that of constraint and fear. Have I done something? Have I stepped out of line? Uh, but rather, love for God and neighbor. 
and so um, Paul uses this phrase here. He says, all things are lawful, uh, but not all things are helpful. That's actually uh, a repeat from something he said way back in uh, chapter 6 in the same book here. Uh, in First Corinthians 6, he said, all things are lawful for me, uh, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but I will not be dominated by anything. Now, there's debate as to whether when he's saying all things are lawful, uh, is that a quote of something that first the Corinthian church has written to him, uh, or is it something that he is actually saying? Now, um, if you've read Paul, you know that he certainly wouldn't be saying it doesn't matter, you know, there's no, no such thing as ethics. Um, but he might be quoting them uh, because this is kind of a, a, a statement that is a little bit um, uh, too simplistic, you could say. But I actually think he's kind of using it as a, uh, as a shorthand for all the types of freedom that I talked about before. Uh, he's, he's basically saying, if you are free in Christ, you're not hung up on constantly worrying whether you've stepped out of line and, and um, violated the law uh, for all of the above, the reasons that I gave uh, earlier. And so whether he's quoting them or not, I, I would say he's using this phrase as sort of a shorthand and saying, okay, let's grant that point. Uh, if I do something unlawful, I'm not condemned. Um, so why should I care then about what I'm doing in this specific situation of the, uh, the meat sold in the marketplace? Well, Paul says, all things are lawful, so to speak, but not all things are helpful. Uh, all things are lawful, but not all things uh, build up. And so he's saying, uh, rather than thinking uh, really sort of an internal self-focused thing of, uh, am I being properly moral by drawing all the proper lines Rather, it should be an outward focus to say, what is going to be encouraging and upbuilding to the people I'm with? Uh, it's an outward focus, not an inward focus. Of, because I know that my moral status before God is secure. So even if I make the wrong call here, uh, it's not going to cast me out of the kingdom. So I'm, I'm not sweating this. I'm just sort of thinking, what would actually be the most helpful uh, for the people uh, that I'm with? Uh, and so Paul uh, goes on then uh, to say, well, um, in general, um, don't sweat the details. Uh, you can work it out. And you, there's sort of, I would say there's two, if you put the 1 Corinthians 6 passage together with this one, I would say there's two questions which can kind of pop to your mind. Uh, one is, uh, is this succumbing to slavery to the flesh? That's what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 6. He says, all things are lawful, but some things hurt you, right? Uh, if you do those things, you'll be a slave to the flesh. You'll be an addict. Uh, that's not good. Uh, and the second question he asks here is, uh, is this building others up or is it tearing them down? Uh, not, and I emphasize again in the spirit of freedom, not, will something terrible happen to me if I get the judgment call wrong? If I step out of line, will God zap me? Will people think ill of me? Will people be mad at me? Uh, those are not the questions that should be in our mind, really just the two that I gave you. Uh, is this something that enslaves me? Is this something that builds other people up? Okay, so that's point number one, um, really working out of a sense of what really is best for people. Uh, the second principle Paul lays down uh, is to rejoice in what is good and don't be obsessive about moral perfection. Uh, so he uses this phrase here, he says, eat whatever is set before you, 
And uh, he actually quotes uh, from the Old Testament here. He says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Now, what does he mean by quoting that? Uh, I would say he's really encouraging an attitude of enjoying your food. God created good stuff for us to enjoy. And I've often, uh, in previous sermons, talked about the image of the kingdom of God as a party. If you go through the Bible, how many times parties and feasts are used as symbols of the kingdom of God all over the place? And so again, in that big picture thing, uh, the kingdom of God is not a bunch of people tightly worried about obeying the law and frightened to death if they step out of line. It's a party where people are enjoying good things that God has created, and the earth and the fullness thereof is for their pleasure. And, and where do you stand in that? Uh, and so Paul is saying, you go to a party, enjoy the party, enjoy the food. Uh, don't set up for yourself a whole bunch of Byzantine rules about, I can't enjoy this unless I know that it's you know, cage-free or morally proper uh, in all the following ways. Uh, enjoy. Uh, enjoy what is set before you, uh, and, uh, and simply rejoice in what is good. Uh, so that was my second principle. Uh, and the third one uh, puts a little bit, uh, the second one, intention. Uh, be aware of the message that you send to other people for the sake of their conscience, not out of the fear that you will be sullied, but really out of thinking about really what is good uh, for other people. Okay, so I'm going to put this in modern terms. Paul says, well, um, you're at a party, and there's some meat. You don't say, well, I, uh, I insist that you prove to me uh, before I eat this meat that none of the companies uh, that provide this meat support abortion. Uh, or, again, the intimidating perspective, uh, I'm not going to enjoy this party unless you first present to me a certification that none of these companies support white supremacy. Uh, and otherwise I can't engage. Like, that's a real damper on a party, right? <laughs> um, and so he's basically saying, eat what's set before you, uh, don't make it into a moral contest. On the other hand, uh, what if you go to a party and you walk in uh, and the person says, um, welcome to our celebration of abortion. Every product on this table has been uh, selected uh, from an abortion supporting company. Or they say, welcome to our white supremacy supporting uh, party. Everything here has been selected from a company that supports white supremacy. What do you do then? Well, that changes it, right? It changes the game a little bit because now it's not just, oh, enjoy what's set before you, but like you're deliberately celebrating X, Y, and Z by participating here. And that's the understanding. That's the ground rules of this party. Uh, so Paul says, Sometimes you need to take a stand and say no. Uh, and so really, you know, what Paul says here is, could lead to some real awkwardness at parties, right? So um, if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. Uh, not because you're afraid of sullying yourself. Uh, you are free, but for the sake of the message that you send to this person, uh, for the sake of their conscience, uh, not yours. So if you were to eat food from a white supremacy supporting company, it would not send you to hell. Um, but you still might have to say, I need to take a stand, right? I, I'm not going to stand here and act like this is no big deal. I have to take a stand. This is the same issue uh, that Paul is facing uh, as well. And actually, if you think about it, the freedom that we have in Christ actually allows us to take stands that way. 
Because if we're totally fearful of what people think about us, then the awkwardness of saying, oh, I didn't realize this was an idolatry party, uh, I can't participate. Uh, the awkwardness that we create is not something we're afraid of. It's not something that we fear. We're free to walk away as much as we are free to participate. Uh, and so we're not afraid of people's opinions even when we have to take a stand. Uh, and so sometimes, as Christians, we do have to take a stand and draw the line and say, I can't participate in that. I can't do that. Uh, and even there, Paul is saying where you draw that line is part of your freedom. Uh, the Spirit-led freedom to say, well, maybe one person draws the line here and I draw the line there. Uh, we don't have to judge each other, but we do have to ask ourselves, is there a line at all? Like, am I so afraid of other people's opinions that I would never draw such a line? Uh, or do I have the freedom in Christ to say, I'm not afraid of what they think of me even if I do draw a line uh, and I don't participate uh, in what they're saying? Uh, so, uh, the freedom is sort of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it says, if I choose to participate, uh, I'm not afraid of it somehow sullying me and kiss, kicking me out of the kingdom. On the other hand, if I choose not to participate, I'm not afraid of those people's opinions uh, because I have the freedom to not do uh, as much as I have the freedom to do. Uh, and that uh, goes back to the, the 1 Corinthians 6 things as well to say, we have the freedom to not do all the things, uh, lust, greed, and so on, that the world is pursuing uh, because of our freedom in Christ. Uh, so I'll just finish with that, and I, again, I just want to leave you with um, the big picture. Uh, if you haven't got to a place as a Christian where you feel that unbinding of your heart and you feel free, then you need to go back to square one and say, what does the gospel teach? Uh, am I indeed free uh, in Christ? Uh, and I encourage you to talk to us. I'll be at the Q&A after the service uh, or talk to some of the people here. Uh, but I really encourage you to seek after that freedom in Christ. Let's pray.